American law that goes like this. We are innocent until proven guilty. Now, this is true no matter what you've been accused of, but the question is, what kind of proof is required? Well, as it turns out, it depends on the kind of trial that you're in. In a civil trial, the threshold is clear and convincing proof, which basically means that the evidence has to be just over 50% in favor of the complaint in order for you to be found guilty. But in a criminal trial, the burden of proof is greater. It is, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt, which represents the highest legal standard. By this standard, we don't mean beyond a shadow of doubt. That would be impossible in human affairs of justice. But the evidence must point to no other logical conclusion that a reasonable person could come to other than the fact that the defendant committed the crime. This reminds me of a famous church sign, a question that's been asked many times, which is this. If you were charged with the crime of, commit, of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Would you be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? As I thought about it, in order to answer this question, you need to have a biblical standard for faith. If the faith that you hold does not match the requirements of Scripture, then there's no way you could be found guilty of having a biblical faith. The passage before us this morning really does address this question by considering directly how faith and works are related to one another. In some ways, this passage gets to the heart of what James's letter is all about. James, you see, writes to people who live in a negative world. They are those whose lives and calling are radically different than the people around them. And this is true because of God's gracious work in their lives. God has caused them to be born again by his word of truth, to be a kind of first fruits among his creatures, James 1.18. What this means is if God has made you a first fruits of his new creation, you can never remain the same. You will look and live differently than others who make their home in this fallen world. His implanted word, James 1.21, must be by you received with meekness. You must put away all filthiness and prevalency of sin. You need to live in such a way that you could be found guilty of the crime of being a Christian, if that were something you were accused of. You must be a doer of the word, in other words, James 1.22, and not just a hearer only. But the Christians who read James's letter in the first century, and I believe we also today, you and me, were constantly tempted to conform our lives to the surrounding norms and standards and they're constantly changing, and not for the better. It's our regular temptation to go along, to get along, to downgrade our standards so that we don't stand out too much. And so my sermon title this morning is a question. What is biblical faith? And our text answers this question in three important ways. And I believe the answers to this question can serve as a threefold test as well. The threefold test is, are you guilty of being a Christian? Let's see what Scripture has to say for us 
this morning. We'll begin by reading God's holy word and asking him in prayer then to bless both the reading and the preaching of the scriptures. This is James 2.14 through the end of the chapter, God's eternal word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed or perfected by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So far the reading in God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these this question, what is biblical faith, and, these, and the answers that your scripture gives to it. And each one of us, Lord, each one of your people needs to hear what you have to say to us regarding our faith today. There's no one here with perfect faith. Some of us, perhaps, don't even have true biblical faith at all. and We're still exploring and even considering or weighing following Christ. So wherever we may be, Lord, would you speak to us, encourage us, challenge us in this matter of our faith, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If the prosecutor puts the witness on the stand, the first question he might ask is regarding biblical faith, is your faith alive? Is your faith a living faith? This is the first layer of proof that we would need to pursue. Take a look at the text in the first section, which begins at verse 14 and goes down to 17. James is asking a question to which the answer is an assumed no. The faith that someone says, emphasis there, if you write in your Bible, you can underline the word says. If someone says, claims we might even say, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works, can that faith, that faith, save him? The answer is no. 
the reason given or the explanation given for why that kind of faith is unable to save him is provided at the end of this little section in verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In this verse, James is explaining the problem is that this faith, this claimed faith, is actually not a living faith. It is not an alive faith, but it is dead. The point is not that works can save a person. That doesn't even enter into James's mind. There's no question, James chapter 2, verse 1, that it's the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ that saves. But that faith, he makes clear, is a living faith. It must be alive. True faith is faith that produces works as a tree produces fruit. James adds another concept to this idea of being alive, and it's related, and so it's still part of the same first point and part of this test. And the idea is, verse 14, what good is it? Underline that. What good is it? We could paraphrase this by saying, how useful is it? Or, what profit is it? Or how valuable is it? Faith, if it's like a fruit tree, is not a decorative fruit tree. This is not a flowering pear or a flowering cherry. It's an actual pear tree with actual pears hanging from it. I've been told by some that these flowering trees that we like in our yard, from an environmental standpoint, are and I don't think this, but work with me for a minute, they're a waste of water. All you're getting is flowers from it. I mean, if you're going to plant a pear tree, why not get pears while you're at it? Make your land productive. So having explained how important it is to have a living faith, James then provides a vivid parable in verses 15 and 16 of this first section. He's describing in vivid terms with an illustration what beneficial, profitable, living, helpful, good faith looks like. Take a look at what he says. He's describing a scene in church. This isn't you passing someone on the street corner. This is a scene in church. There are two people in this scene, There's, and they're both Christians. One brother or sister is extremely poor. And the original text actually describes the poor person as being naked, not literally naked, though. The ESV explains what James means by naked, which is mean barely clothed. Just some rags hanging off the body. And a brother or sister who is naked or barely clothed, not only that, as is often the case, poverty comes in clusters of problems. Not only is there a clothing problem here, but there's a food problem. There's probably also a rent problem. And one of you, 
So someone else in the church, someone who doesn't have these same problems, says to them, go in peace. I smiled this morning as John explained what we mean by passing into peace. Well, here it is. Shalom. Peace be with you. We do it every Sunday. James is saying, if you pass the peace to someone, the shalom of God, body and soul, holistic health, blessing, three-dimensional healing. If you verbally pass the peace to someone while ignoring the fact that they are so obviously and clearly lacking in the basics of heavenly peace, your faith is dead. That's what he's saying. He said, what good is that? How profitable is that? How can you possibly say that this is a useful living faith? It's a tough question. And just to emphasize the point, this whole passage actually ends in verse 26 with the way it began. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, James 2.26, so also faith apart from works is dead. The idea is that once the human soul or spirit leaves the body, all that you see is a, a lifeless corpse. Now in Christian understanding, the body and the spirit together make the person and the whole person is holy. So we understand that our treatment of the body, both while we're alive and while we're dead, ought to be reverent. I'm not saying that the body is just a shell. But it's dead. That person can no longer get up and walk around in his flesh, at least not until the resurrection. And so using this little mini vivid illustration in verse 26, he's saying the same thing that he's saying in verses 14 to 17, which is seen from the perspective of being useful in this life, that body is no longer useful. It's worthless. It's no longer profitable. His days are done. So if you want to know if you have a biblical faith, James is challenging you to ask yourself, is my faith useful? Is it alive? I was thinking about an illustration of this, and I'm no economist, but these days I'm told that inflation is rising, which means that a dollar doesn't stretch as far as it used to even a year ago. Your, your dollar is worth less now than it was before inflation started to rise. Now, in an extreme case, inflation may take on such graphic and ex extreme proportions that it's, it, it would take a million dollars to do what even one dollar would have done a year ago or five years ago. And at that point, the currency is absolutely worthless. It's not, the paper actually is worth more than the dollar. And this is what James is saying. He's saying that if you have faith, you've got this nice green printed dollar bill. 
But inflation has so inflated the cost, if you will, of products that when you actually go to back up that so-called faith with money, people look at that and they're like, sorry, we don't take that here. It's not worth a dime. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, what does it benefit, same word, what good is it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? I think James might be paraphrasing in a way or at least channeling or echoing the sentiment of Jesus in Matthew 16. What benefit is it if you say you have faith and there are no works? So in the trial of your Christianity, the first question is this. Do you have living faith? The second set of questions are negative. Is your faith counterfeit? But it isn't just that it's, it's, we're not just wondering if it's counterfeit. We're actually wondering if it is a demonic counterfeit. Take a look at the next section of the text in verse 19. Actually, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In this passage, we have two things that are going on in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Here we see James affirming the importance of theology in the Christian life. The oneness of God is a central cardinal teaching for the entirety of Scripture. God is one. Now we understand with the further illuminating light of the New Testament that he's not merely one, but he exists in how many persons? Three persons. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But these three are one God, the same in glory, equal in power. So James is saying that theology is important for the Christian life, and in the trial of your Christian faith, if you come up without any theological content, without any theological knowledge, you say, well, I'm not a theologian. Well, actually you are. Do you believe that God is one? Theology number one. It's the first and most important point in theology. There is one God. We are monotheists. So in this little phrase or this little saying, there's, it's deceptively short, but extremely profound and important. And James is just sort of alluding to it. He's just giving a gesture in this direction. He could go on and on about all the different theological topics that are important for a Christian to believe. I mentioned one of them, which is God is not just one, but he is also three, the three in one God, the Trinity. We could paraphrase it and say, you believe that God is triune, good job. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, well done. That's important. You believe that he lived the perfect life that you could never live, excellent. You do well. And all of these theological topics, we'll call this orthodoxy. You're an orthodox Christian. I don't mean uh, a Russian or a Greek pastor with a long beard 
orthodox, not in that sense, but in the, in the literal sense of orthodox. Your, your, your doctrine is correct and right and true. You're orthodox. But along with orthodoxy comes, for James, something called orthopraxy. Not just right theology, but a right life, a right lifestyle, or right living. The, the lifestyle that's pointed out in verse 19 isn't what you might expect. It relates to our emotional response to God himself. You believe that God is one, James says, you do well. And then he adds, by the way, that's no different than the demons. They also believe in the oneness of God. They also believe in the sovereignty of God, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that God is triune, that the Scripture is his word, and that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Demons have a very, actually, a pretty deep bench when it comes to theology. They're extremely orthodox. In fact, the demons are more orthodox than you are. They, a demon knows more theology than you do. But what do the demons do with their theology? What is their orthopraxy? How do they live it out? What's their praxis look like? Well, in response to the knowledge that God is one, James is telling us demons shudder. The feeling is if you're in a a room and you you hear something go bump in the night, you tremble. You start to get a little nervous. The thought is that if you hear footsteps in the hallway, you're feeling a sense of dread. And they should feel a sense of dread. I mean, this one God, the name of this one God is the very name by which these demons are going to be ultimately cast into the lake of fire. And in a, in a, in a, Christian, um, in a Christian moment of spiritual power, the demons are exercised or cast out of a dwelling place in a poor person who is enslaved by them. They should shudder. Their emotional practice, their first reaction to their theology is to cringe, in other words. This comes into a little more sharp focus if you actually take a look at what James is quoting here. You believe that God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the fundamental confession of both Jews and Christians. But as soon as Moses writes this, he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not be afraid of him. Do not tremble. Do not shudder. Do not cringe. Do not worry. But love him. So orthodoxy, good theology, God is one, needs to be married to orthopraxy, a right way of living. And even before we even look at how you're treating one another in the community, which is the context here in James, James wants to point out that there is a very close connection between how you feel about God 
and what that says about your faith. Do you love him? When the demon utters his counterfeit Shema, he trembles. When he confesses the sovereignty of God, he flees in terror. But what about you? What's your response to theological affirmations? The Lord is one. Are you filled with joy? Do your your tears well up? Does your pulse quicken at the thought of meeting this great and glorious God? Are you overwhelmed with the sense of closeness and intimacy? Do you feel his invisible but very real embrace? Does your mind go to all the answers to prayers? This great God has shown to you. Does it lead you to worship? and thus ultimately to humble obedience. In the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, the one who did nothing with the Lord's gospel portion, Scripture says that he hid it in a handkerchief, this kingdom treasure, and he was asked to explain his actions by the master. He says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept hid away in a handkerchief, For I was afraid of you, for you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. It's true. God is a severe judge. But that's not the only thing that's true about him. A similar story, which I mentioned earlier this month, in preaching the first half of this chapter, The story of the rich young ruler was certainly orthodox in his beliefs, but this great knowledge of God and all of his commandment keeping didn't trickle down to the one area of his life, we'll call it the control room. You know, the engine, the thing that really was driving him. He loved his money. Adultery, no problem avoiding that one. For whatever reason, God had given him a measure of clarity in that part of his life. Honoring his parents ever since I was a kid. I've been a good boy. Jesus is like, what about that money thing? And the rich young ruler is like, you know, I really need to be getting going at this point. Actually, the scriptures are are much more pathetic. They say, he hung his head and walked away, for he was a man who loved his money. Sometimes Christians have called these sorts of struggles our controlling sins. The Puritans would call them a darling sin. Lord of the Rings fan would call it a precious sin. You just can't let go of it. You can't let go of it. In such cases, you have to ask yourself the question if your faith is nothing more than a demonic counterfeit. You're being charged with the crime, biblical faith, 
Is there evidence to convict? Would any reasonable person look at the way that you live and conclude that your faith is living and not dead? That was my first point, that it's of some benefit. Secondly, are you all information and orthodoxy but no transformation or what I've called orthopraxy? If so, the startling claim by James is that this demon faith or one mind of faith, this rich man faith, is impressive to people but not impressive to God. The third line of evidence, my last point, is this. Biblical faith has a perfecting portrait. Biblical faith has a perfecting portrait. In this passage, in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He says, okay, let's talk about a couple of examples. Let me give you some portraits in the Bible. And who does he choose to, to, to sketch out for you? What are, what are the... What are the profiles of faith that he gives you well one perhaps is not surprising Abraham he's the father of faith I'd commend you this afternoon to read uh, Romans chapter 4 the entire chapter is based on the fact that Abraham is the father of faith for New Testament believers I love it But it's interesting, the way in which James attempts to talk about Abraham's faith, it's quite different than we see in Romans 4. Was not Abraham, verse 21, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? If you're taking notes, that's Genesis 22. But if we read on in this passage, it says... You see, verse 22, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed. That's the word perfected that I'm looking at. Matured by his works, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. The scripture was fulfilled in Genesis 15 when he was reckoned to be righteous. In Genesis 22, it's fulfilled. So James is doing some extremely important Bible study here that a quick read will miss. First, he says something that happens in Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac. You know the story where God calls Abraham to offer his son on an altar, his only son, the son of promise, a mind-blowing uh, irrational request from anyone else except the sovereign God. And Abraham, believing that God is able to fulfill his promise, even without the son of promise, binds his son and prepares to offer him as instructed. And in that moment, God cries out to Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham, my son, I see that you trust me. I see that you believe me. Release your son. And God instead provided a ram in the thicket, which was then offered as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
You see, this is Genesis 22. Abraham was first declared righteous in Genesis 15. And a lot of water under the bridge has, has taken place from Genesis 15 to 16 to 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. So what was true of, of Abraham in principle, if we can say this, in Genesis chapter 15 is evidenced or manifestly true in Genesis chapter 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? We could say shown that he was in fact justified by his works in Genesis 22 because verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that declared him to be righteous in Genesis 15. And then I love this phrase, and he was called a friend of God. That's really what we're all about. Are you friends with God and living for God, or are you friends with the world and living for the world? If there's enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian, then it's going to be clear that your best friend in the world and in this life is God. You're a friend of God. There's no greater compliment or greater piece of evidence the second illustration is interesting, Rahab. Rahab the prostitute is justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I wouldn't necessarily have chosen a prostitute to be an exponent or a trophy of faith, but here it is, faith and works and Rahab the prostitute. The first to me is obvious enough, Abraham, but the second one stands out as being unusual. First of all, it's a woman. Second of all, it's a woman of ill repute. Perhaps what James is saying, whether you're a mighty patriarch or a sinful woman, it doesn't matter. Faith without works is dead. Perhaps James is making the point that status and reputation in the world's eyes ultimately is not how we are to consider our standing. In the portrait of biblical faith, what matters is that you're moving forward, perfecting, growing, maturing, that your faith is being completed. That justifying grace of God in Genesis 15, Abraham sinned many times between 15 and 22. The story wasn't over for Abraham. And who knows how much Rahab sinned in her life, but when those spies appeared, she hid them. It's her last and greatest act. It's a beautiful story. Before I conclude this morning, I want to pause and consider a question that sometimes comes up when we're studying this particular passage in James, and it is this. Do James and Paul contradict one another? You see, Paul is known as the Apostle of Grace, the Apostle of Freedom, and because he emphasizes again and again how the works of the law are nothing but condemnation and we're saved by faith alone. And in this passage, the ESV translate that we're not saved by faith alone. It sounds like Paul and James are in a, in a theological battle. No, James and Paul are not in con conflict, and, and Luther, who popularizes this saying, sola fide, or faith alone, he also wasn't wrong, and here's why. 
Both Paul and James believe that someone who is truly saved will demonstrate the reality of their salvation by a changed life. They will have a living or fruitful faith as we've been studying this morning. For example, in Galatians 5-6, Paul says that what really matters is faith working through love. This is Galatians. Galatians, the, the, the letter of justification by faith alone. Paul is clear that it is, as the saying goes, not by faith that is alone. So Paul agrees with James, but then again, James calls us to hold on to the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, James chapter 2, verse 1. This is the starting point for James for everything that we do for God. And so Paul agrees with James, and James agrees with Paul. The difference, perhaps, is related to the fact that Paul has written at least 13 letters in the New Testament, and we only have one from James. And James is writing very early on in the Christian story, probably in A.D. 44 or 46. And Paul is writing in the 50s and the 60s, many of his letters. But they both believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. They both believe that we are sinful and helpless apart from God's intervening, sovereign, and transforming grace working from heaven to earth, from the outside in, making us new creatures in Christ and enabling us, as Paul would say, to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, in the beginning of my sermon, I mentioned this famous question. It's not original with me. If you were accused of being a Christian for that crime... Would there be enough evidence to convict you beyond a reasonable doubt? In church history, every single one of the first followers of Christ were killed for their faith. Stephen was the first martyr. He was stoned for not keeping his mouth shut, but he kept preaching. And they got madder and madder and madder until he finally crossed the line. And they cried out, tearing their beards out and tearing their cloaks. This man must not be allowed to live. And they stoned him. And uh, Stephen, because he was a Christian, echoed the words of his Savior from the cross, Father, forgive them, even as they were snuffing out the last breath of his life. Not our James, but James, the son of thunder, the brother of Zebedee, one of the twelve, was killed by Herod. And church tradition, this is uh, in Acts chapter 11, by the way, church tradition has it that his accuser was so convicted by this false trumped-up charges that were brought up against James Zebedee that he was unwilling for James, son of Zebedee, to be martyred alone and fell to his knees asking for God to forgiveness, and they were martyred together. That was the testimony that James, son of Zebedee, had on the one that was accusing him of being a Christian. The prosecutor was converted in the trial. Philip the evangelist was scourged and thrown into prison in A.D. 54. Matthew the tax collector was slain with a halberd in the city of Nadaba in A.D. 60. Our James the brother of Jesus, also known as James the Righteous. 
His reputation was so great amongst the pagans and the Jews that they complained when he was finally brought to trial for his faith that he should be spared of all the Christians because he was such a godly man. And it wasn't enough. He was stoned, and finally, the death blow was with a club that beat his brains into the dirt. How could all these men do it? At first glance, it isn't a good picture because at Jesus' own arrest, all of his followers left him and fled. But after his resurrection, Jesus visited them and encouraged them and restored them, and on the day of Pentecost, he poured out his Holy Spirit, and they were never the same. There was a boldness that came into them, a chutzpah, a confidence that transcended anything of any other religion in the day. And they never looked back. And so they took the gospel to the ends of the earth, no longer afraid and never denying his name again. How can we apply this morning's passage to our lives? Well, first of all, I want to challenge you to have faith. We're not even in the discussion. If you're still standing on the outside and looking in, if you're still wondering and, what, and musing whether or not Jesus really is who he says he is, as important as good works are, no amount of good works can earn your way to heaven or establish your life before God. You need the faith of the glorious and risen Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe. Believe the gospel. Two, if you are a believer, you need to be open to, to being tested this morning. What is the quality of your faith? How are you doing in your faith? Is the faith of the Lord producing the fruit of the Lord in your life? I assure you, this is not a comfortable question. It's not meant to be. Is there an indifference in your life to some or another commandment of God? Now, the passage itself, we need to give it its, its, its airtime. Specifically here, the indifference is in the community for the inequities between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have-nots, the lower middle class and the upper middle class. We need to ask that question. In this church, if there is an indifference among us to the needs that are present among us, you say, well, I don't know of any pastor. You're in this church. It's not my church. I'm the preacher. This is your church. Pastor, can you tell me of anybody who has needs? Well, that's a fair question to ask a pastor, but, but it's your job to know who has the needs. And you're not going to get that information in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And it isn't just material inequities. I think there are other inequities as well. Reputation, addictions, mental health, privileges, responsibilities, trials that are going on in one another's life. There could be a rich man who has all the money he needs, 
but his life is crumbling before his very eyes. And if you don't know it or you don't respond, your faith is dead. That's what this is saying. You say, well, he looks like he's got it all together. Well, of course, that's what rich people do. You need to know better and look behind the curtain and be so involved in this person's life that you can actually be there when they need you or vice versa. We can't say to one another, go in peace without doing something about the lack of peace. And this assumes, and you hear, you hear me saying this, that you are making this church a true community of faith, a fellowship of the brethren. My beloved brothers is James's favorite term for the church. That this is a community of shared life, a koinonia. There's commonality here that Acts 2 is in full force. Acts 4 is in full force. There is no one who has need in our fellowship. I spoke to someone recently about a situation where they're facing and they're having difficulty paying the rent. And I asked, would you mind if I shared your need with the church? And there's real hesitation there. If you were in that, in that situation, you'd probably feel some hesitation too, unless you were on your last dime. Yes, you need to make a commitment to be here on Sunday. And some of you need to be reminded that that is an important commitment to make. Sunday worship is an important priority. Regular, consistent Sunday worship. But it doesn't end there. It actually begins there. This is a launch pad for a holistic, shalom life of faith and mutual dependence in one another's lives, the teens, the elderly, the middle-aged, and everyone else. We're being the church if we're following this text. And this can be hard, especially when sin raises its ugly head amongst us. Dealing with sin in the church involves something called church discipline. It's the dirty word. We all want to just have a great time and a great feeling in church and get pumped up and really get going and yes. But unless the church that you are a part of has leaders who are faithful and courageous and willing to step into your life and say, no, that's not right. Jesus loves you. I love you. This needs to stop. That's the communion of saints. It's the acid test. For us, we are to use James as leaders and the rest of the Bible to ensure that our practices of the church, as a church, and as Christians in the church, line up with the word. So we talk about a profession of faith. The elders are not to be judgmental, but they are to be judges. They are to, to be fruit inspectors, as Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 7. You will know a tree by its fruit. We can't neglect in our closing applications, beautiful, glorious Rahab and the hospitality that she showed as a woman of ill repute puts the best church potluck to shame. She welcomed people as a nobody who could kill her. She made it into the Hall of Fame. 
We don't know what hospitality is as a church. These aren't people who will invite you over next week while you invite them over this week. It's caring for strangers and aliens and people that are different than you and people you don't understand or make you uncomfortable in the name of Jesus Christ. It's inviting weirdos over to your house because you know you're a weirdo. That's what it means. And all of this is sacrificial. It's an Isaac. It's a binding of our precious and offering it up to God and saying, there is nothing that you've given me that is fair game, that isn't fair game for me to offer back to you in faith, believing that anything I give, you will more than repay me, not only in this life, but in the life which is to come. Biblical faith, in the end, looks beyond this life and sees the sacrifices of this life as nothing. So the prosecution rests its case. And you're left with the question, do you have biblical faith? Let us pray. Great God in heaven, Please have mercy on your church for we have wandered and erred and sinned in so many ways. And this text is a searching, probing text. It's difficult to preach. It's even harder to hear. Lord, give us ears to hear. Don't let us close our hearts to the truth. And don't leave us Having exposed and wounded us, would you heal us? Would you comfort us with the knowledge that the boldness and the faith that we need has been accomplished and sealed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, by Christ himself, our forerunner of faith. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.